0: I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now, I don't want to wear out Colossians chapter 1. I use it a lot, it seems like. Lately, I've referred to it a lot. And the direction that I want to go this morning to begin this year is, I'll title it, Warning the Wary. Because if there's anybody in the world today who should be really wary spiritually speaking it should be christians and yet christians are not always wary we're not always circumspect we don't always pay keen attention or as jesus said watch and pray or as peter said to be sober to be cautious and careful because the world is full of danger there's all kinds of traps and there's all kinds of potholes in the highway of life and there's all kinds of things that can happen to you unawares the bible talks about or being snared or being caught unawares or being misled or being overtaken i mean those are the kind of words the bible is filled with and as we read that we're supposed to acknowledge the fact that god is warning us almost through the whole bible I guess the whole Bible from beginning to end. Even in the Garden of Eden, there was a warning about a certain tree. Things that can cause you harm, things that can do damage in your life, or things that can destroy your life. And you have to be careful. We mustn't walk aimlessly through life and just think, well, I'm a Christian, nothing's going to happen to me because I went forward last night, or I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, or... I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I've learned a lot, listened to a lot of tapes, been to a lot of meetings, etc. and therefore, I'm really okay. You can never let your guard down. Even the Bible says, you that stand, take heed lest you fall. And the phrase take heed is used over and over again. So we're not to read this and say, well, we taught on that before and go on because it's a continuous theme. The world isn't getting better because we're in it. The world's in darkness. It's full of evil, and evil works everywhere. Even Peter wrote, your adversary, the devil, like a, a roaring lion, is walking about looking for somebody he can devour. That lonely, depressed, or dejected person who had a bad day or sees no good coming in their life, and what's the use of trying, and Christianity didn't help, and I go to church, and what good was that? They begin to let down their guard, and the devil is looking for that person so they can not only mislead, add a little worldly comfort, make it look better for a while, and then it falls apart. It always does. It always does. There's no good to the end that the world leads people to. Because at the end of your life, it's God. You have to face God. And all the things that we have learned and all the things we think we've learned and all the things we've been taught and all the things that God has said, all the trials we have come through in our past and it all comes back and we will be told you knew better and you were unwilling to do it god's way and so to prevent that from happening to you on judgment day it's my task as a minister to make sure that you're warned in colossians 1 and verse 28 paul speaking concerning jesus and again i say i use this a lot here lately but maybe this is the hour we're in we need to hear this He said, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. I think today it would be more modified to say we preach Jesus and his love and the kindness that you can expect and all the wonderful promises that he has made and we want everybody to be happy and comfortable. But that's not what he said. Obviously, those things are true in a sense and in a degree. But he says, we preach Christ, and we warn every man that we meet, teaching them in all wisdom so that the effects of this ministry can be to present these people completed, fulfilled, and reaching their intended end of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ at the end. I want to have that kind of effect upon people when you preach to them or when you minister to them. So he says the first thing he did, though, was to warn. Now, as I've already said, warning is not something that just was spoken of in Colossians 1 or something that the New Testament speaks of. Listen to these words in the book of Ezekiel. That's all the way back to the right of center, Ezekiel, and chapter 3. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Now, you know what a watchman is, somebody who is anointed to look at things, to watch out, to be the cautious, sober-spec watchdog. Not a dumb dog that can't bark, but a watchdog, somebody who watches over. Under the house of Israel, therefore, therefore, because of that, hear the word at my mouth and do what? Give Give them warning. About what? Warning them about what? Well, while you're going about your busy day and all the things that you have to do as parents, as a responsible head of your house, making money, paying bills, obligations, all the things that we do as normal, ordinary people, isn't it interesting that God picks somebody to do a lot of your watching for you? Now, we're all required to be sober and so forth, but he said, I have made thee a watchman for Israel, therefore... Hear what I have to say to you and warn people. So it appears that a lot of what God says has the effect, when you tell it, of warning people. Watch out, there's things coming, there's things going on. Now, we often take this as criticism. Some people do. We think that we're just being critical when we warn people about this or about that. But I think that there is a way that God shows the danger In so much stuff, religious stuff, the danger of it, the effect it has upon you, the way it misleads or misguides, the way it causes you to let down your guard, that if we don't see the danger of it, if somebody does it and warn people about it, even though they're mistaken and, you know, you're ugly and critical and dogmatic, we tell people that because if we don't, you could fall into a trap. Amen. You won't be discerning, in other words. And discernment is something we're all responsible for. And what's discernment about? Of knowing right and wrong. What does the Word of God do? It divides asunder between what is flesh and what is spirit. It even comes as a warning. This is the way, walking in it. And so when he talks about this, he's speaking of Malachi 2, where he said, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. That's his job, is to keep knowledge. And they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord. So there is an obligation of ministry. I don't know how they're trained. I don't know what their philosophies, I don't really care, but the Bible says there is an obligation of ministry to people they minister to, to first of all, hear the word of the Lord at his mouth, because he can speak and then to warn people so that nobody gets trapped, nobody wanders off, nobody gets snared, unless they just want to wander off, and you can't do nothing about it. But you want to make sure that we're well-informed, that we're enlightened about what's going on in the world, the dangers of it, and to warn people as Paul said, to make sure that they hear that and that they're going on. Now turn to Proverbs 1, that they're going on with the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23 will begin this morning with the problem. A problem is peculiar to all of us at one time or another in our life, and to some degree, maybe now. A problem which shows our need to be warned as well as our need to be wary proverbs chapter 1 and verse 22 he says how long you simple ones will you love simplicity and the scorn of the light and scorning and so forth in verse 23 turn you at my reproof behold i will pour my spirit out upon you and i will make known my words unto you now the first question we ask concerning this is what did he mean by simple because we all confess that we like things to be simple, we like a simple lifestyle, we like things that are not complicated. Most people do like that. But this word simple is different than that. How long use simple ones? It's not really said in a good way. It doesn't say simpletons, because that's sort of an ugly word, use simpleton. But that word does describe probably what he's talking about here. Somebody who is naive, uninformed, deficient in spiritual wisdom. You shouldn't do that. You should know better than that. The simple ones say, well, what's wrong with it? They said, Jesus. They use the Bible. What's wrong with it? He said, how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? Now, the fact of it is, all of us at one time or another were very naive. We didn't know what was right or wrong about spiritual matters, Or maybe I was the only one naive and simple. I know when I came to the Lord, there's a whole lot that I didn't know. You probably knew all of it. I didn't know much of anything. I needed to be taught. I needed for the Spirit of God to move in my life and bring knowledge to me so that what I used to do, I quit doing. So that wisdom now dictates that you shouldn't do that. I know you used to, and God was good to you, but you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk like that, or you shouldn't wear that, or you shouldn't go there, or you shouldn't be with those kind of people, because the entrance of thy words give light, and it gives understanding to whom? The simple. simple. So if you say, well, I'm simple, that's okay. Just don't stay that way, because the entrance of his word gives light. Light is knowledge, it's revelation, seeing things, perceiving things. And he gives understanding to the simple so that you're no longer naive, ill-informed, or ignorant. Now God has shown you something to correct you. And he wants you to walk in newness of life so that you're no longer walking aimlessly through life, but you have purpose, you have a direction, and you know why? Because the entrance of his word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Now, maybe this whole book is about this, because in the first chapter of this book, like in verse 2, this whole book is about the three words in verse 2, to know wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And you see those three words used over and over in this book, because man basically is uninformed spiritually, and you know that. He may be informed about the world, but that's darkness. If the light in you is dark, which is the world's knowledge, and your world is a real dark world, you may think you're really good, but God says it leads to death. So he said the key to life that gives purpose to life is wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. When you put all of those three together, you get a person who really does know right from wrong. He's the kind of person you can teach, the kind of person you can pastor, and the kind of person you can lead. They're not difficult people and he says in verse three to receive the instruction of wisdom justice and judgment and equity in verse four to give subtlety think of the word sense sensibility to give sense to the simple you could think here of the simple another word would be seductible those easily seduced, or those that are easily misled because they sort of capture anything that feels good. Oh, that's fun. Oh, that looks neat. And they're not informed. They just follow that. They're simple. And to the young man, knowledge and discretion. So perhaps that's what this whole book is about. But in verse 23, he says, turn at my reproof. Now look across the page, if it's across the page in your Bible, verse 32. Verse 32. He says, for the turning away of the simple shall what? The wandering off, the misguided lack of spiritual information in your life, living by whatever and just being a good guy and a good girl and not really paying attention, just having fun in life, said that will slay you. Because again, at the end of that life is God. He said, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them." So, we want to give heed this morning to the few points I want to make about being wary, but also being warned and being able to be warned and not think that we know it all and don't need any more than what we have, because that would be a dangerous thing also. Remember, correction, as he said in Proverbs 15, verse 10, correction is grievous. Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. And when you've gone astray from the Lord, when you've wandered in different directions, but you are made to think that you're all right, I'm okay, come on, I'm all right. God's bigger than this, which interpreted means I don't need to be corrected anymore because God is bigger than whatever I'm doing or wherever I'm going which means I don't have to pay attention. I don't have to discern anymore. I don't have to make application of the word because God's bigger than this. And therefore, I can just live and go and listen if I want to, go if I want to, and make an application if I want to. It doesn't matter because God's bigger than all this. I don't know what that means, but that's what people say. And then when you begin to correct people like that, they want to stand in your face. Yeah, but even, like he said, Proverbs fifteen ten, correction is grievous to those who forsake the way. So we want to warn the saints. I do. I want you to be wary. Not suspicious, not critical, but wary. Let's look at some verses this morning which bring this to light. First of all, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. A very vivid picture here, very clear picture of what can happen when we get blessed, and we do get blessed. Look at verse 17, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. Now that's just right out of the box coming into the promised land and of course Deuteronomy is a review of the law before we go in and take the land so first of all is the word of God now the purpose of all these priests and Levites and the various ones of them who do this is teaching priests was to teach the people the way of God God emphasizes that over and over and over chapter 8 and, and verse 7 For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. That's what this book is about. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten in are full and then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given unto thee. Beware. Here's our first wary thing. Verse 11. Beware lest thou forget the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command thee this day. Now before I read the rest of this, let me ask you a question. How could anybody who was led by such a mighty hand, mighty miracle, how could anybody see the power of God every day of your life with the cloud and the, and the fire and the water that came in the desert? How much water for a million people in one day? How much water would you need to drink if we only had a gallon of water? That's no bath. If you bathed once in a while, And you drank occasionally, and you had a million people, the whole greater Louisville doing it. How much water in a desert would you need in one day? I don't know if people think about that, how God sustained people in a situation like that. And I don't know what they fed the oxen. Does grass still grow in sand? Yet they had all the animals. They had thousands of animals. And it doesn't say anywhere that they all died in the desert eating sand. But they saw this every day. How could you see this, be aware of this? And they go into a land that he leads you with. Everything is flush and growing, and the people you run off out of this land were gifted farmers because what they did, they did it for you. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just, and they came into this land. And, and boy, the water is clean, the pomegranates look like, grapefruits how could you come in there and forget god who did all of this well it doesn't mean that they forgot him it doesn't mean that he was not in their thinking or their thoughts or he disappeared from their mind and their memory it doesn't mean that it just means that you get so used to enjoying all the blessings that you believe God for and you use your faith to get and all the goodness that he brought into your life that then you get all of that and then you forget that you got this by trusting God and by being devoted to God and he blessed you with this now don't walk away from him and act like you don't need to be devoted anymore because I've seen it happen he said beware lest you forget God just means that you don't acknowledge him anymore in your life you used to believe God for that car or refrigerator or stove or couch, carpet or something, and we used to make it a point of, Father, there's not enough money come in, or my job, I need it, and whatever. And we just kind of pressed in for these things, and marvelous testimonies. For years, we heard good testimonies, how God did wonderful things for us. We could write a volume of books on how God has blessed us, little things. But they were things that came in response to really pressing in, oh, God. And he did it. He said, now don't accumulate a lot of this world's good and then live like you don't need God anymore. Because remember where it all came from. Go back to verse 11 again. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments. You still do that. I don't care if you're wealthy beyond measure. You still do this. And he says, and his judgments, his statutes, verse 12, lest when you have eaten and you're full and you build nice homes and you dwell in them. Whoa, what a nice house. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart is lifted up and you forget God. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen to people whom God had a word for them. God is going to bless you. God is going to do this. And, well, and people struggled during these days, and it didn't look like God was going to bless them. Then one day, the blessing just began to come, and he, God piled it on. And one day, a man is—and I've heard this testimony. You look back, and you see all the good way that God led you, and it paid off because you stayed with it. You went through fire. You went through water. And it was a struggle in some of those all-night meetings with God, just with your children or your marriage or whatever it was. And he brought you through. Wow. And then one day you begin to look at all you've got and start taking a little time off from the Lord. Well, and then you begin to involve yourself. in. you got money. You can do that. You begin to forget God. Begin to put more emphasis on your possessions than you do the word that brought you all of this. And begin to forget. He no longer gives a testimony. She no longer testifies to God did this or God did that. Money does it now. You got a lot of money. You don't have to do that. You don't have to ask God for things. If you got a lot of money, you can just say, well, I worked hard for it. And you forget. You just forget that just as God has given you all of this stuff, it could easily be removed. All it would take is one lawsuit, one trip to the big house, the hospital. You could eliminate most of it. Folks, if you're blessed and you believe for it, I have, it's not a boast of yours of how shrewd and clever you are in working through life. It's all about the goodness of God. It's all about what he's done. That's why it's easy for these people to be able to give things because what they've got was given. And freely you have received, and what is said? Freely give because as you walk with the Lord and you keep him in all your thoughts, you don't get attached to all this stuff. Oh, you're grateful for it and you give him thanks for it. But it doesn't control your life. Life is not about stuff like that. You forget about God, you get in trouble because it becomes a pattern of your life. You begin to drift aside. Then you think you deserve to be recognized. You deserve to be nominated, voted in, or you deserve, or, you know, after all, I gave more. Life loses that keen, zealous edge that it once had. I've seen this for the last 30 years of my own life. I've seen people that were so blessed and came to a place of blessing and then to complain about the word. The very word that brought it into your life is not what you complain about. Well, oh, that's too hard. Well, we ought to just trust the Lord with what you're hearing. Believe God for what you hear, shouldn't you? And then be glad you hear it. And then take time to study and make sure that what you heard is in this book. And not to believe it because some preacher said it, but because you see it. And then you'll believe it because God said it, and then you'll be devoted to God and not a man. That's the way it should be. Now, second thing, he says, beware of covetousness. Well, we're sort of talking about that. Beware of covetousness. Would you look in Luke chapter 12 where it says it? Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he may divide the inheritance with me. This is what your children do after parents die. They shouldn't and mine won't. There's not enough of them here to say amen, but anyway. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Then these words, based on that kind of thinking, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Mainly because possessions do not necessarily indicate spirituality or God's favor. A widow put in enough money in there that, to make a noise. I'm sure her two mites made a noise. Widow's two mites were not much, but Jesus complimented her. If God ever compliments you, you did well. Or here's somebody who said, hey, I, th- part of that's mine. Make him, make him give that to me. Jesus said, you beware of covetousness. Wow, you think that's pretty strong, isn't it? Well, not necessarily. You see, the word covetous can also mean greediness. The Bible speaks of greediness a lot. Greed is a driving force. It's a thing that is in people who want to get and to have. They just want more of it. It becomes a passion to get and to have. You know the story about Rockefeller. Somebody said, how much will you have to have to have enough? And he said, just a, a little more. And they already had mine and yours. But he said, just a little more. These people live for it. They plan their day about making money and getting more. They look for schemes and ways that they can get things. So many times a wife loses a husband to this pursuit, and a family loses a dad to his pursuit of greed. But he justifies it. He just says, well, look, the more I make, the more I can provide for my family. We could have a better lifestyle and a better quality of life, and they can have a... A new bike instead of an old bike, and we can go places and see things that God made? I mean, what's wrong with all of this? Well, there's nothing wrong with any of that if it's done the right way. But to justify your lack of, of interest in being a husband or a daddy, and maybe this applies to women in other ways if they're single, but to give your whole life into pursuit of treasure, of getting things and having things and wanting things so much that you devote your time, I'm going to have that, I'm going to drive one of them, I'm going to be there, I'm going to live in a place like that. Look in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Listen to what God here says about covetousness. Covetousness. Coveting. That's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Verse 5, mortify, put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is what? Because that's what you're living for. Your money, your possessions, your gathering in becomes the very thing you live for. Now, you would never admit it. People that do this would never admit that, but that's what they do. They live for it. They're devoted to it. It becomes idolatry. And when they get a bit of it and start gaining it, they begin to admire it. And they want you around them to admire it. Look what you've done. Yes, yes, well, you know. Covetousness. There's nothing wrong with getting up early and going to bed early and working hard all day and and making money and when opportunities come to do your best. But at never, ever, ever at the expense of being a Christian and if you're married, a Christian husband, a Christian father, the head of your house, those things are always first before this other stuff. And it's because you seek God richly in being a man that God has assigned the task of making citizens for God's kingdom that he gives the blessings to. But the blessings don't rule him. The word of God rules him. And when you're ruled by your worldly pursuits, you are an idolater. Don't say amen. But it's true. You may not be worshiping some thing carved out of wood or made out of gold and silver. It's not some picture, some painting on the wall or some little chubby buddha sitting somewhere in your house that you worship you've seen them little buddha statues but what you worship is what you give your life to what means the most to you and that's money and they seek it the bible tells you not to even run around with people like that that's not the people you should be around they will affect you it's like a disease It rubs off because it makes you want what they got. That's what envy is. Envy is often an ill attitude towards somebody else who has something that you wish you had and they didn't have it. And because you become critical, you become a backbiter and a tailbearer about that person or him or her. Yeah, well, look at her. She thinks she's such hot stuff. You may envy somebody else's beauty. You may envy somebody else's handsomeness. You're welcome. But... You know better that, don't you? But anyway, envy comes in, and then you get to wanting what somebody else has. And then you quit praying for those people because you can't pray for who you envy or who you want to get what they got. And you wish you had this and they had that, and God warns us against all of that. It's all in the Bible, so we have to warn us about that. Be careful. There are people in this room that are going to really be blessed, I mean, materially, you're going to be blessed. Some of you young folks, you're really going to do well. But the warning is, as a first point, don't forget God. And secondly, beware of covetousness because it becomes like a big disease. It does. It becomes like a disease. The love of money, remember Paul wrote to Timothy, the love of money lies at the root of all this evil. Or of all this evil, at the root of it is money. And those who seek after that, the Bible says, have pierced themselves through with many a sorrow. They start giving themselves to the covetous crowd, and that's drinking and partying and all of that trashy stuff. And one day you realize you're an alcoholic. Your body doesn't work like it used to. Now you can't go to all them places you wanted to go and enjoy all that time in life and that quality of life you wanted because now your body begins to be infected with certain kinds of disorders. And the devil has made a fool out of you with your money because you can't put it in that box and take it with you. How many of you know when you die, they don't put your savings account in the casket? If they act like they did, you better talk to the undertaker because they usually wait till you're out of the room before they shut that box and close it up. You can't take it with you. It is meaningless when you die. Money has no value when you're dead. It has no value, zero value. You came with this world empty, and when you leave, you better hope you can take something with you that makes you favorable to the grace of God. Because if you don't, you were misled, and somebody either didn't warn you, or you're too hard-headed to be warned, and that happens too. But that's the kind of a spirit that takes over people. Before God judged his people in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is full of judgment. These are the words that Jeremiah said in 6.13, For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone deals falsely. The Apostle Paul, a preacher, said in 1 Thessalonians 2, he said, you know, when we came to you, there's two things we didn't do. This is not the way the verse reads, but these are two things he said that we did not do. We did not flatter you. We did not use flattering words to maybe make you like us and sort of support us a little better. We told you the truth, and we were never cloaked in a robe of covetousness. We weren't after what you've got. We were after you. You know, we often think of covetousness in these preachers. I'm harder on preachers than anybody I know. I've seen a lot of them, been disappointed in a lot of them, been blessed by a lot of them. But I see some of these schemes today, and these money-making schemes. And you know what we're talking about. And all of these ways that they appeal to people for money. I think of Isaiah. He said this about that kind of stuff that's going on today. Even back in the book of Isaiah 56:11. he says, Yea, there are greedy dogs. Now, when God says greedy dogs, that's really not good. It says, yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look well to their own way, each for his own gain. Now, when you do that, it's no longer ministry. It's being ministered to. You want what people have. And to get that, we go to number three, beware of hypocrisy. Now, we taught on hypocrisy the other night, so I won't labor the point but hypocrisy is pretense. It's play-acting. It's appearing to be something you're not. You don't have to try to be spiritual to play-act. You just make somebody next door to you think that you're a nice guy or a nice lady when you're not or that you like them when you don't. It's falsehood. It's acting-like. It's pretending-like, and God hates it. In Matthew 23, to the Pharisees and the scribes, the great pretenders, the ones who prayed on street corners with long prayers, he said, and you do that for a pretense. And you talk about all this wonderful stuff and you're robed in certain ways and you act so pious and so spiritual. He said, outwardly you appear beautiful to men, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. You're hypocrites, eight times in one chapter to one group of religious leaders Eight times he said, you are hypocrites. He said, you go about heaven and earth to make a proselyte, to get you a convert. When you're done indoctrinating him with the trash that you teach him, when you get done with this person, this person is twice as much a child of hell as you are, which means they were children of hell. Are those hard words? They're warnings. It is easy to be a hypocrite. To play like you're really sincere when you're really not. Or to play up to the well-to-do people like you really care about them. And I've been praying about you, brother, and I I just know that. To get their money. That's what it's about. You see, underlying hypocrisy and the spirit that promotes hypocrisy is witchcraft. It's a form of control. It's how you make people do things, say things, or give things that they wouldn't ordinarily give. You prompt them with your actions and your speech. You're a hypocrite. You don't live what you preach. You don't live the life you say you live. You say you're a Christian and you look like that. You talk like that. You go to those places and you're a Christian. I thought you were a follower of Christ. Would he do that? Would he wear that? Why are you so offended when somebody warns you about all this stuff? Aren't you a Christian? We can all act like we're something we're not. I see athletes all the time. They pay them $5 million a year and they make a tackle and you think they ought to bronze them because they made a tackle. They're paying you more money than you're worth to do that. But it's notice me, admire me. Look how strong and tough I am and then they fall apart caught in all kinds of moral weaknesses. Preachers too, because they're a bunch of hypocrites, but God knows who they are. That's why we warn you oftentimes, when somebody preaches a word to you, don't get all enamored with the person. Listen to what the person is saying, and then see if that's what the Bible says. And then praise the Lord for the word he said, especially if somebody travels through. I had a man sit down once at a seminar and asked if he could speak with me. And I said, sure. I don't know a lot about this stuff. Been around this quite a bit. I can detect some things. I detected something about the man. We sat down, and he wanted to inform me that I was misunderstanding the office of prophet, And something, we kept talking about that. And I said, I'll give some thought to it. I was real suspicious. And he wrote me a note when I got home. He said, obviously, you're not very keen in your discernment because, he said, it was a prophet who was speaking to you. And I'm thinking, based on what? Because you walk into my life as a total stranger. I'm supposed to go, a prophet. Well, you're all prophets. Somebody walks into a service we've never known, never seen before, walks in and goes, hallelujah, and starts some kind of gibberish. How do we know who they are? Oh, but he said something that was true. Did he really? Did he say, you're breathing? You're breathing. Thus says the Lord, you got socks on. (laughs) What if I said this morning, there's somebody here before you came to church, you're having a mind battle with something that's going on in your family. No, no, it's in your body. And something that just came up in the last week or so, and you're troubled by it. And the Lord says. Now, I've got a good chance for many people here that might be right i might have got some of that right i remember years ago in the charlestown the christian church i was speaking one sunday and i just sort of alluded to something like that i said you know well, you're here this morning and you've been having this headache and as i snap my finger it goes away it goes, praise the lord it's gone i thought well i wasn't even thinking like that said. <laughs> i remember that. Said, praise the lord it's gone i said okay praise the lord <laughs> But don't look at me like, boy, this guy's really something, because I was just making a point. And if God hears you when I'm making a point, we ought to make a lot of points then, maybe. <laughs> but then if you start preaching like that and doing that, you're trying to get something. I want to be admired. Notice me. Admire me. When I hear you coming around the wall into my office, and I hear somebody coming, I'm going to go. And I knock on the door. Oh. Come on in. I was just preaching. No, you was not even reading the paper before they come in there. <laughs> Lanyard Bartle, remember that time you came back from Israel? All of you out in the world out there listen to this. Brother Lanyard Bartle had just gotten back from Israel and uh, snuck in here like a thief. <laughs> snuck in here and tiptoed around this carpet and walked around next to my office with a shofar, a ram's horn. And let it go right there beside my door. Oh, and I—I'm in good health. I'm glad I'm in good health. Man, I about jumped up. All well, I did—it's what friends are for. <laughs> Amen. Turn to Matthew 15 before I get off track here. Matthew 15 concerning hypocrisy, and then we'll move on. Listen at this, verse 1, Matthew 15, verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, people of which Jesus had no admiration, nothing good to say. And they said, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, tradition was the unspoken law that they say God gave to Moses that was not recorded as law, but it became tradition. Jesus said, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? Then God said this and said that, in verse six you come to this. And honor your father and mother, he shall be free. He said, thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions. You have made the word of God of no effect by your tradition as a result Uh, putting something else before the word, for whatever reason, I'm talking about hypocrisy, he said this, verse 7, you hypocrites, does he say that in your Bible? You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is that hypocrisy? Well, we need to listen to that. I do. Verse 9, but in vain. All of that attitude coming before God is vanity. It is worthless. It is useless. It is to no avail. It is all vain. He said, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Number four, beware lest any man spoil you. Colossians 2. It says, through philosophy and vain deceit and after the tradition of men. We just saw that. Man's word instead of God's word. Man's interpretation instead of the spirit's interpretation. Man's idea of what we should do because it's noble, it's good, and it seems to get us all involved instead of what the Bible says. Those are the traditions of men and those are things that rob and spoil us. Colossians 2, he said, beware lest any man spoil you. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, by worldly means and worldly things. That somebody disarms you, robs, cheats, takes away from you, especially your faith, especially telling you you don't need it. We've heard so much about that. I've seen so many faith disasters. Well, I have too. Do you think if somebody has abused, misused, or misunderstood the word of faith that I'm going to let mine go too because it didn't work for you? Let me tell you something. I've learned this in my life. I don't base what I believe on what you do. I don't expect you to base what you do on what I do, but I do have a responsibility to be an example Doesn't it say in Hebrews 6, be therefore followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? Well, it's important then. It's important. But he said through philosophy, your Bible says it, through philosophy, vain deceit, man's traditions, and the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That's the way we get spoiled. That's the way you get robbed. That's the way you get robbed of your faith. That's the way a lot of people get robbed of their health. It just takes a long time to explain all of that, but a whole lot of things that God would do for you right away, he doesn't do because you don't know how to appropriate it. You can't take away from the fact that Jesus said, when you pray, believe. I mean, you can't say, well, you know, God loves me, and surely because he loves me, he sees my need, and he's going, well, he loves you and all of that, but he also told you, this is how you approach him. What things, soever you desire, when you pray, believe, that you receive them, and you'll get it. Or James 1, if any man lack wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally. But you've got to ask in faith without doubting. Because if you doubt and you're not sure when you ask a certain God for his certain and sure and steadfast promises, and you're uncertain whether he really will do that or not, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. I know people are offended when you say that, but that's what the Bible says. That's why it doesn't work for us. And so when we let go of that, because somebody said, well, that's just a misleading theology that came into the church and caused a lot of this and caused... Okay, and then you leave that, so you sit down to what's the option? What's the alternative? Well, I mean, what is the alternative to that? Love? Well, just love God. Love, by its very definition, means commitment. Mm-hmm. The very essence of commitment is love. That's what it is. And Jesus said, if a man loves me, he will keep my word. And when you keep the word, the Father and the Son will begin to reveal themselves to you. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Now, if you take that away from me or you water that down, modify that or murky that so that I no longer can be sure that what God said that he will do, I have nothing I have theories, I have philosophies, I have heady things. The Greeks love this, this heady intellectual stuff that never gets the ear of God. God is not impressed with any of it. I have the traditions of men. Well, let's just think this way and maybe God, maybe perhaps. And it doesn't work. And I'm left misinformed. I am left spiritually abused things I thought would work, it didn't work because somebody talked me out of it. I took somebody's word for it. I just sat there and let it be. Vain deceit, the word used is vain deceit, is empty, useless designs of man's fables. When men begin to say this, this is an end time, modern update phrase. When I look, we know that the Bible says Don't you think, then you begin to appeal to human reasonings and to the simplicity of man who is easily misled. You begin to talk logic about things. You know Now, look, now we know that God heals, but don't you think that in some cases God may not want to heal this person because this person, and then, I mean, doesn't it seem right to you that in some cases God would want to, and you say, well, let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what the Word says. No, it doesn't say that. It says all his promises are still, even in 2010, his promises are still, yes, and they're still amen, and they still bring glory to God. So you're misleading me. But sometimes we're too embarrassed to say that, and we're too nice to make a change, and so we just sit there and die with the rest of them. What do you think is behind an ecumenical spirit which says this, let's all the churches, let's all come together together, Let's lay our doctrines down. Let's just come together as God's people. Let's unite together for the good of affecting good in in our community. Now, you'd say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, if you're as hard-headed as I am, maybe as legalist as as I am, I think, you know, two can't walk together. Now, we can act like we are. We can play like we are for a little while, but eventually... You're going to ask me to pray, and I'm going to pray in a way that you're going to say, Brother, can I talk to you about something? I don't think we, you know, and I'm going to have to say, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What am I doing here? I tried this a long, long time ago. I remember the the Methodist preacher came up after a meeting where I used to teach school up in eastern Kentucky. they had a revival in the gymnasium. And a kind Methodist pastor came up to me after it's over and said, and I was young, and he was right. He said, now, Brother Tom, you have a real enthusiasm and a real zeal and all this. He said, I just want to caution you about something. I just said, good. Yeah, let me hear it. So he talked about Noah's Ark, because Noah had come up. and He said, you know, we know. Now, here comes man's tales, man's traditions, man's Limited spiritual understanding about what God said. We know that it would take 90 boxcars at least to put all those animals in that ark and that there's no way that could be. And really, what God is saying is simply a way of telling us that he is, as God, he just spared humankind and started all over. And at my young and dumb age, I remember thinking, what planet did you come from? Can't you see the miracle of the ark? That great big elephant that couldn't fit in the room became about this tall, little bitty thing. And he walked in the ark, and Noah put him over here in his little pen. And here came a big old giraffe, hello there. And he put him over here in his little pen. And next thing you know, you could put them all on his pulpit. All the animals. God could do that, couldn't he? You think God is limited by an ark? Or oh, the Red Sea and the Reed Sea. Well, now we know that uh, there's no place as deep as the Exodus was supposed to. Well, it didn't have to be deep. It could be that deep. Well, you could slosh through there. You could just run. I know you could. But Pharaoh's army was about that big when they got there. So. They hit a little creek bed, and the time they got across the other side, all have the little creek ran over the little, the little Pharaoh's army, and the little army... <laughs> washed down into the water. Said, you're real simple. Leave me alone. I just choose to say that God did it his way. And if it doesn't appeal logical to man that God had another way of doing it to make the wisdom of man foolish in his sight. Fifthly, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before. Now, what things are we talking about? Well, if you were to go back in verse 8, it's the day of the Lord, the end time, the judgment, the terrible judgments that are going to come on this earth. It will happen. It will not delay. God is not slack concerning his promise. He will come when he said he will do what he said he will do. Verse 11, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, Notice he asks, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? If you knew the world would end Friday, this coming week, if you knew that Friday was the end of the world, how would you live till Friday? What would be important? Your job, your money, your pets, your car, your house, your vacation? There's only one thing, if you were smart or wise, only one thing would be prominent, necessary, and vital in your life. That means that when Friday comes and Jesus comes, that he finds you to be what he wants. You got one week to get ready. Would you? Well, what if you know he's coming anyway? He's coming anyway. Maybe Friday, maybe next month, next year. Who knows? I don't know exactly when, but it won't be too long. Now, the question, what kind of people should you be? How should you live your life if you know, if you know this is going to happen? So he warns us in verse 17, You, therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness means stability, being fixed. Being established. The word steadfast was used by Jesus in Luke 22 and 32 when he told Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And he said to strengthen your brothers. Remember that? When thou art converted, strengthen. That's what steadfastness means. Make your brothers strong. It's ministry. It's the call. It's what you do. It's what you give yourself to do to whoever will let you. Make them strong. Pour the word in them. Make them strong. How many people who once were strong? I don't want to labor the point. It goes too far back. But how many people have we known who used to be so strong or appeared to be so strong, so sure, so settled and steadfast? A pillar. Quit. Quit. Turned back. Gave in. Gave up. Maybe there was nobody to follow. Maybe somebody died. Some great figure died, and everybody just lost hope. That's what they did when Jesus died. They lost hope. Remember that? They lost hope, cowered in a room until Jesus appeared. Then they were ready to go change the world. But a lot of people gave up their hope. They just threw it in they begin to follow this prophetic stuff that came by and left. Or some follow this less than the prophetic, this apostolic, so-called apostolic move. Well, they're looking for something to follow. They've never learned to engage Jesus as Lord, as one-on-one and have a relationship with him, a relationship established in commitment or love that I will live the life you show me to live. I will walk your way. I will give up all rights to my life. Everywhere I disagree with you, I will put it on the cross. He's looking for that. I know a lot of people said that and began that way, but they turned back. They turned back. And the world is full of people who are out there trying to not only to make you fall, to give you some good logical reasons to ease up. Come on, man, ease up. Peter said, beware, you that have taken a stand, you've made a commitment, you've committed yourself, you say you love the Lord, you say you're seeking the kingdom. Now, make sure your life is the definition of that. For your life is an indicator of what Jesus means to you. How you live tells the world what Jesus means to you, whether he's the focus of your life, the purpose, the reason of your life. But this is what makes you steadfast. This is what makes us secure and certain. And he said, you make sure that you are. And in doing it, in chapter 1, verse 13, and in doing that, you do it like this. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For, if you do these things, you know what he says? You'll never fall. When Jesus comes, you will be here. You will be ready. And he will take you. Because you will not fall. If you give diligence, effort, concern, dedicated zeal, Diligence to make certain of your election, that He chose me and called me. I haven't seen the book. I can't say my name is in the book or that I'm one of God's elect because I can see it. I believe I am. It's all by faith. I believe I am. And because I believe I am, my faith is going to be put to operation by living like I am because He showed me how I live if I am. And I'm going to live that way. This is where I'm going to live. I'm going to walk. If Jesus comes this year, I'll go with him this year. If this year comes to an end, I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. I don't mean to disappoint you all, but I mean I'm just saying that I'm going to stay with what I believe. I don't know what out there in the world. I can't think of anything that's worth giving up anything God has for it. What God has said supersedes it all. Like the guy said not long ago. What are you going to do if all this stuff you say you believe isn't true? (laughs) So what are you going to do if it is? What are you going to do if it is true? What if the Bible isn't true? Well, what if it is? I don't have to defend it. What if it is true? What are you going to do? What if your faith doesn't work like you think it's going to? What if it does? What if it does? There's been a case or two in history where faith worked. I mean, it's happened, so I have hope. What are you going to do if if God requires it and you don't have it? I'd rather have it and fail than to not have it and succeed. I don't want anybody to spoil me. I don't want anybody to make me fall from my steadfast. I don't want to give up what I believe for anybody or anything. Because in closing, he said, we are to beware of evil workers evil workers. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the incision. You're talking about, in his day, the Judaizers. Many of those of the legalists in Israel got saved when Jesus came, where they followed the Lord. But they couldn't get away from the legal part of the law. They were still law people, commandment people. And so when these Judaizers got saved, they said, well, he's a Jewish messiah, He came to a Jewish kingdom. And in order to be in his Jewish kingdom, you have to live by the Jewish law. And they required all the new converts that they did to be circumcised. They had to observe certain days and do certain things. And this is why Paul said, beware of people like that. This is not a legalistic walk that we have. It's a walk of grace. That is, the Almighty God has given you the privilege to come to him. Wherever you are, or how distant you've been, and how little you know or how much you know, you're called to come to him and walk. Walk in the light that you have. Uh, people with a lot of light are required to walk in a lot of light. Those who are new or simple uh, have a little light. That's what you've got to walk in. But you can know him. You can walk with him. And don't let people talk you out of it. Don't let people talk you out of this word. Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravening wolves. Beware of those people. That's a warning. Beware. How do you know what is evil? Evil workers, let me close with this. How can we know? Is there a verse, a phrase, an idea that clearly defines evil? Something that I can say with all the definitions of evil, what one way can I pinpoint it and say that all evil springs from this one thing? I found it. It's in Matthew 16, and it goes like this. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Remember the verse? He was talking to one of his own. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Why? For thou savorest not. The things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Your longing and your desire is not what is of God, but it is what is of man. That is where evil comes from. And everything that springs from man apart from God is evil. Amen. So, in closing, it is time. The new year has gotten off to a decent start. God wants you to be whole and ready and looking for him when he comes. You must avoid the evil that's in the world. You must secure yourself to him and his cross and make sure that you don't look back and don't regret what you've got to go through. Just hold on because I promise you, there may be tears in the night, but joy will come in the morning. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, minister to us in the deepest way that we need it, Lord. Continue to make clear to us our need for this word and for the working of your spirit. Now, in appreciation, we look to the communion table. And as best we know how to say thank you for something like this. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We read about it. We pray that we are moved enough to have honest and sincere hearts when we say thank you, Lord, for what Jesus did, for the bread and for the cup, for the life that he gave, for the death he died and the struggle that he went through for me, because only by his death do I have life. And we give you thanks for that this morning in this bread and this cup, and we ask you to hold that image before us, as we take this moment to pause for this occasion. In Jesus' name, amen. Rushing
1: wind, blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. Come and breathe your breath. I've been born again. Holy Spirit, I surrender. Take me where you want to go. Planted by your living waters. Plant me deep so I can. You're the one Who set my spirit free Use me, Lord Glorify Your holy name through me Separate me from this world, Lord Sanctify my